Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Real Life Work Podcast. I'm Kevin McManus, your podcast host. I was all set this week to talk about proactive process improvement. All too often, we get hung up in reactive process improvement, project-based improvement, and we forget how to actually attack processes proactively on a daily basis. And that was going to be the focus of today's podcast, but I'm going to save that for next week because I just couldn't resist. You know, 10 years ago, I was teaching a lot in Canada because things were booming pretty well. Got to know a lot of people that lived in the eastern part of the country. And when we had our train wreck in Loch Meganic, it was a pretty significant incident and affected a lot of people that I worked with and taught. And because my dad had worked railroads his whole life, I went and dug into that incident a little bit more. And as a taproot investigator, it was pretty interesting to look at. You know, you could see that path to failure. And, you know, you could see it wasn't just a case where the train rolled down the hill, fell off the track, crashed, and oil tanks ruptured and burned. There was a much more to the story than that. And that's the point of this particular podcast is all too often when we do investigations, we forget to look beyond the worst thing that happened, the train wreck in this case, the incident. And with environmental issues that often occur as a result of personal injury or equipment damage or some other kind of major issue like we had in East Palestine, Ohio, just a couple weeks ago, that's where we want to be able to look what happens after the incident. You know, did we detect the problem quickly, respond as we should respond in a prompt manner, and most importantly, did we remediate effectively both in the short term and the long term? So I'm going to get into that in this particular podcast. I've had the opportunity over the last 18 years to teach a lot of environmental people in some fairly tough environmental areas as a taproot root cause analysis contract instructor. For example, I've been up to the North Slope of Alaska five different times to work with the environmental folks up there in the oil field, helping them get better at analyzing what they can do to avoid spilling eight ounces of petrol on the tundra. Similarly, I work with a lot of the energy companies downstream in California because they have such stringent environmental standards. It's often a challenge to keep pace with those. And so we use Taproot proactively to look for ways that we can head off the environmental concerns that other customers might have or non-customers might have down there in California. But let me get back to the train wreck thing because we had the East Palestine train wreck as I started reading about it, you know, the little bits that the media would grab and try to promote, I started seeing parallels between that particular incident and what happened in Loch Meganic 10 years ago. And sadly, I was probably going to expect the focus of it all to go upstream versus downstream and we almost get so caught up in what caused all this bad stuff to happen, we forget about what are we going to do about the environmental side? 
So what I'd like to do is let's learn to look past the train wreck. Let's look at how to improve environmental investigation root cause analysis. And I'm not going to teach you root cause analysis or go into that detail. But what I want to do here is help you get better at establishing the key areas to focus on to dig into further. The National Transportation Safety Board in the United States calls these contributing factors. We call these causal factors in a taproot investigation process. But when you use causal factors or contributing factors to help you find root causes, it tends to push you away from blaming people and blaming equipment and help you get down to the actual systemic reasons that people made mistakes or equipment failed. And in this post, I'm going to share with you five different ways that you can improve environmental investigation root cause analysis. Now, the text for this post can be found on the Great Systems website, and I'll also post a LinkedIn article with this focus within the next week. But the quickest way to get this will be to go to the Great Systems website where you'll find the Real Life Work podcast subscribe button and all that other fun kind of cool stuff. So this this post is not about what kind of root cause analysis process to use. Instead, it's about setting up your investigation to cover the bases, so to speak. My intent with this post is to widen the scope of our environmental investigations. That way, we don't need as many train wrecks to realize the improvements in environmental impact practices that too many companies still need to make. And that's another interesting thing with this that I'll touch on later in the podcast, but I get the chance to travel all around the United States and all around North America. I've been in almost all the provinces in Canada. I've been in all but one of the states in the United States, and that's multiple times in almost all those cases. And I can observe environmental practices It could be something as simple as recycling, which some states like us out here in Oregon are very passionate about and others might just be beginning to start down that path. As a country, we're grossly inconsistent when it comes to environmental protection as well. In some states, we investigate any fuel spill in excess of eight ounces, you know, around 250 milliamps. In other states, the threshold for the same spill quantity is much higher. I don't expect consistency, but I think we might want to reduce the variation a little bit between the upper threshold in the most liberal state and then the lowest threshold in the least tolerant state. My larger concern is that weak investigation practices and fixes are prevalent in the environmental protection area because we get caught up in the more visible things that occur, the more present things that occur. We neglect to pay attention to the hidden hazards like we should, the hidden risk. We clean up the spills, but what about the less visible side effects of the release? All too often, we seem to think stability exists because some form of action was taken. On the surface, everything looks okay. However, what hidden hazards remain? But that's enough backstory. Let's get to the five ways to improve environmental investigation root cause analysis. I've been talking about the first one actually for the last few minutes, and I call it look past the train wreck, but it's reflected in the diagram that goes with this post. Always have a recovery from failure element in your investigation timeline, in your problem analysis timeline. Our tendency is to focus on the worst thing that happened, the main event, the train wreck. Fewer pay attention to not or not as much to the actions people take as corrective measures after the event. For example, just days after the National Transportation Safety Board issued its report, and that was 
February 23rd, when that preliminary report came out, the media had found their single cause focus. The National Transportation Safety Board report listed multiple contributing factors and stated it was preliminary, but the media had found their promotional fix. It was the bad bearing. Bearing failure causes derailment. Just do a, just do a little keyword search. You'll see what I mean. In many cases, both personal injury and environmental harm occur as part of an event such as a derailment, pipeline rupture, or facility fire. All too often, excessive attention is paid to the human condition in the short term at the expense of other areas, and especially the human condition over the long term, that deserve more attention. Recently, I taught a two-day on-site class for Taproot made up entirely of people whose job focus was environmental investigations. And they were in the course for one main reason. In their organization, which I had actually done a lot of work for over the years, they do good investigations. But too many previous investigations made by others only included limited mention of errors and failures of an environmental nature. So, for example, delays in detection of the environmental issue, delays in response, and most importantly, incorrect or no remediation. In other words, their investigation results failed to close environmental safeguard gaps. And so I've thought about this a bit since that class, and I came up with that recovery from failure path that you'll see on the diagram. That's a way to address it. And if you're investigating an environmental incident, look beyond the circle, look beyond the worst thing that happened, and look at that recovery from failure path. Look at the path we have established for getting the environment back to where it was prior to the incident. To what degree do we detect, respond, and mitigate the release as expected? Okay, that's the first way to improve your RCA. Second, and this is key for evidence capture, you want to improve real-time data and evidence capture at the scene during the initial 24-hour evidence grab. Incident scenes like this are emotional. They're chaotic. They're loud. There's all kinds of things going on, and it is super easy to distort, delete, and generalize about the different things that made up the incident storyline. Plus, memories rarely last. That's human nature. And in the past, we were just stuck with what people remembered. If we go back 15, 20 years. However, today's technology makes it much easier to capture real-time evidence at the scene. We just aren't familiar yet with the availability and how prevalent it is and the capabilities which keeps changing. So how often do your investigators have the tools and skills necessary to leverage such Jetsonian advantages? What role does voice recognition, video and hands-free data capture, 5G data speeds and environmental and biometric analysis play in your environmental investigation future and maybe in your present? So for example, Video and voice recording should be standard practice now in these kinds of incidents. However, do we have functional headsets or, or earbuds and a cloud service that allows us to capture such evidence? Is the use of such not technology for evidence capture part of our investigation protocol and quick response kit? Have we looked into using tablets as a way to capture evidence at the scene? This is changing dramatically. I looked at no-code apps just nine months ago, and 
just wasn't impressed yet. And what a no-code app basically does is it allows you to take data from a smart device and put it into a database on your company server. And so, for example, you may take data from a screen on a smartphone. Uh, a person calls up an app, fills in five fields, presses enter, and it puts it into an Excel spreadsheet or it puts it into an AS400 database. But the cool thing is in the last nine months, we've gone from a per app or per user type model to one that's more monthly in design and QuickBase is one I would say go check out if you're looking at ways to create a no-code app that you can use to capture written evidence in the field. In a similar sense, what are the pros and cons for body cam use by our investigators? If you wear an Apple Watch, if you carry a smart device, their biometric and environmental sensing capabilities are becoming greater and greater. I found it interesting that there was such an AQI discussion about the East Palestine incident because there are websites you can go to at any time and check the AQI for any part of the United States and it's real time. I wonder if anyone did that. That'd be part of the investigation if it was me. Anyway, use new technology, real-time data capture. Use that to help you look past the train wreck and look at that recovery from failure path. And as we do, and this is one reason I like the taproot process, because it expects you to seek out multiple contributing factors to help reduce future incident risk levels. We don't want to learn only a few things from a bad thing that happens. We want to learn as much as we can so we don't have to keep having train wrecks to get better. In Western culture, people, though, struggle to see systems. And Peter Senge, who wrote The Fifth Discipline, taught me years ago, people are conditioned to respond to events. When the media states that a wheel bearing is to blame for a derailment, it lessens the focus on the other contributing factors. Oh, it was the bearing. That's what we're focusing on. All too often, significant remediation errors lead to excessive pollution. I've seen so many cases where releases are almost a byproduct of the production process, but failure to manage releases is what leads to the exceedances. In a similar sense, often our failure to clean things up and restore the scene from an environmental perspective leads to the excessive pollution. And I'll get to more on that in a few minutes. It's often a failure to perform root cause analysis on such errors, let alone fix them. So remediation errors by themselves could be a focus for an environmental person in an organization if your environmental exposure is pretty significant. As I mentioned, the parallels between the Lock Meganic train derailment and the East Palestine train derailment are just overlap very well. It concerns me, though. If one looks at the multiple flammable liquid derailments in North America over the past 10 years, you're going to see common problems. We've had this issue with the double-hold cars going back and forth in government in terms of where do we mandate them, where do we not? What are, you know, what are all the adjustments we need to make to be able to move you know, oil, especially more higher H2S type oil, you know, more flammable liquid oil. And most rail companies weren't equipped with double-hold cars, and so they were trying to run the oil with the single-hold cars, which are much more easier to rupture. Now, I haven't done research to see how far we are into that transformation process, and I have no idea 
if that's part of this story. But how aware is the public of when the need for special equipment exists, like double-hauled rail cars? You know, can I look out my window if I have a railroad running behind my house and tell if the railroad follows the rules or not? And I've been in that world. You know, I grew up with the railroads. Let the media pick their favorite area to fixate on. But internally, teach your investigators how environmental incidents often unfold. Help them learn to look for equipment failures that often initiate a release. Help them learn to find the path to failure for such equipment failures. They, they end up being investigations of them, their own. But if we just focus on the train wreck, we don't try to stop those failures that are heightening the risk of a release or an exceedance. So, multiple contributing factors, not just one root cause, not just one thing to blame. Number four, always expect and look for root causes of, first of all, failures to follow recommended regulation, and number two, failures to effectively enforce regulatory practices at all company levels, and that includes contractors. And I say that because we attempt to manage the environment with environmental law. We allow states, however, to practice different environmental laws in spite of the obvious difference in impact. I'll give you another example. They still free drop coal through open air into rail cars in Louisiana, or at least they did the last time I was through there four or five years ago. Here on the West Coast, we are taking Montana coal and putting it on barges, sending it overseas. You would not even know that is what those facilities did because they're fully enclosed and don't have carbon black all over the place. That said, whenever they try to put in a new coal facility, there's protests. And so it's very interesting to look at how people have a sensitivity towards environmental law depending on where you live. And I've lived in a variety of areas. That difference is noticeable. Is that difference worthy of a federal mandate? Where should we set the limit for such practices? I mean, there is a threshold. When are we breaking the rules? When are we going too far? How often do leaders actually know when they violate environmental regulations? And this isn't complicated stuff. As we build both our path to failure and our recovery from failure into our investigation timeline, think about intentional and unintentional rule violation. The distinction is significant. When we're doing environmental root cause analysis, we want to understand the rationale for the decisions that were made. We don't want to assume willful intent. We don't want to assume ignorance. We want to understand the decisions that were made and the decisions that were not made. It directly affects the type of corrective and preventive action we might propose. We should expect the courts to treat willful violation differently. So that said, the site's mission statement should serve as your local guide for environmental practice. I believe strongly, and this comes from where I grew up, and I'll get to that in a second, but companies, work sites, should support their key communities, not poison them. The ability to lobby for a sentence or fine reduction when it comes to environmental and community damage seems to be a bit too easy of an out. 
Out where I live here in the Oregon forest, our most obvious is when they will clear cut. And in Oregon, there's a law. If you clear cut, you have to replant within three years. However, if you happen to sell the land to somewhere, someone else, or it's under a rezoning ordinance review or something like that, you can delay the replanting. And so we've got the not hundreds of acres about a half mile from the house that have not been replanted in six years now. But oh, well. <sighs> Number five, consistently work to raise community awareness of real risk and hazard potential plus expected and reasonable mitigation actions. I have no, no pause with expecting children to understand basic placarding. I, it's not that hard to teach kids to look at placards and say, that's bad stuff and here's why. Oh, that's number eight, that's poison. You know, teach the kids that stuff. They're going to see it more and more. It's not complicated. But more importantly, it doesn't take that much to raise community awareness of what the real risk and hazard potential is. I grew up in a rural paper mill town down in southeast Arkansas. And today, Cross at Arkansas is the focus of a documentary you can find on iTunes called Company Town. I love that town. I love the people from the town. For years, though, the paper mill discharged waste into the local woods and creeks. Much of this pollution occurred prior to the creation of the EPA in the early 70s. However, when they did detect the problem, it was difficult to get others to believe it even existed. And I'll leave it at that. There's plenty you can read and study on it. I'm giving you the perspective of a seven-year-old playing in the woods a mile or so from house in the late 60s. As members of the community back then, we accepted this pollution as normal. Oh, that's the paper mill. I lived and played near Stink Creek. That's what we called it. I thought nothing of the colorful bubbles and foam that always floated on the creek surface. Similarly, too many communities are unaware of the hazards that exist in their proximity. I mean, how many folks even know what the closest Superfund site to their home is? It's not that hard to find out, and it might be shocking if you went and looked. Sadly, we can even say this for the employees of those companies in some cases. How well do the folks in your organization know the hazards that they work around? How well do they understand the importance of effective mitigation and remediation when those hazards maybe get larger than they should? All too often, we make improvements just to get under threshold reporting levels. And there's a cost-effectiveness curve there. I don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean no more releases can occur. They just need to be smaller than the, in amount than the threshold. That makes logical sense. If a company consistently releases something hazardous into the environment, they should be transparent about it. Where it gets interesting is when we start lobbying for thresholds. You know, what is the process for setting threshold levels? But communities have to learn to be realistic about those trade-offs that come with added protection. We can't bulletproof everything. And I don't think you can have a strong community business relationship unless you have those conversations, unless you can reach that level of openness and transparency. So those are my five ways that I try to help 
folks that do environmental root cause analysis improve their approaches. You know, the very first thing we try to do is learn to look past the worst thing that happened. Look past the train wreck. Have a recovery from failure element in your timeline. Number two, look at how you currently capture evidence and how, think about how can I use today's technology to improve real-time data and evidence capture. Number three, and this links to that first one, but always expect and seek out multiple contributing factors to help reduce future incident levels. Don't focus on one thing and go crazy on it and neglect all the other factors that contributed to the problem because they happen more often than you realize. They just rarely all line up to have a really bad thing occur. Number four, always expect some kind of root cause related to failures to follow regulation or effectively enforce regulatory practices. And then I'll let you decide how you want to classify and deal with those as you move down that road. So much of that depends on where you live and the type of business that you work in. But just get to know it. It's not that complicated. Environmental law, the basics of it, it's not that crazy. It's worth the investment to take three or four hours to get to know it. And then finally, number five, that's why I bring that up here. I believe as organizations, we need to consistently work to raise community awareness of the real risk and hazard potential, plus the expected and reasonable mitigation actions. I don't know, I don't know how we can live with the secret, so to speak. I'd rather get it out there. Let's talk about it. Let's, and the reason I say that is so many of my customers on the energy side, they are super proactive. They have plans for getting to carbon neutral. You know, they can tell you what they're doing to be very proactive in terms of reducing their environmental footprints. And so, so much of this reputation stuff, it's almost, it's almost like those organizations where People think, oh, those folks at the top make millions of dollars. And when they really find out what people make, oh, well, I didn't, it's not that much more than I make. That's often the case here, you know. We think the environmental side is so evil and the company is doing so little to address it when actually the company is very proactive and cost effective in their approaches. Now, that is not always the case, but there are very good organizations out there that do this type of thing. So in closing, think about what did people do wrong or fail to do after the derailment, after the train wreck, after the worst thing that happened that maybe magnified the problem even more because we've got to find and fix the root causes of those environmental errors if we truly want environmental sustainability. So if you've got a team of people who do environmental investigations, and often they're scattered all about the U.S., North America, the globe, if that's the case, I'd love to do a three-day virtual taproot root cause analysis course with an environmental focus for you folks, and I think that's a good way to help all of them improve their investigation skills at one time. So if you're interested, just message me through LinkedIn. You can also go to the taproot website. I'd that's the group I do contract for, contract work for, uh, and you can find the Taproot three-day virtual course and give it some thought. So if you want more information on this topic, please connect with me. You will find this script, not all the extraneous stuff, but the focus, the five key things and the key things I've said about each of those. You'll find the podcast script notes 
on MyGreatSystems.com website. If you have ideas for the podcast, don't hesitate to shoot them to me. And if you'd like to be a guest and be interviewed on the podcast, if you do real work, real life work, you qualify as a guest. Just be ready to answer questions about what your work life is like and what you do to make work a better place. Have a great day, folks. I'll see you next week. Keep improving.